Hey, listeners, uh, you're going to get this same information again if you listen regularly. But just in case, you want to make sure everybody knows that we have a little fun excursion plan to go to Paris. We are both incredibly excited about going to Paris. I've been doing my Duolingo every day. I know we all know that how, in spite of my formal French study, I'm really bad at it. So every morning, I'm brushing up to get ready for this trip. I am too, because mine is pretty sloppy. My vocabulary is okay, but my grammar is pretty train wrecky. So the good news is even if you don't speak a word of French, you're covered. The way this whole thing is set up, you do not have to be able to speak French in order to enjoy the trip. No, we will have local guides who will be helping us navigate the language, navigate the city, all of that. It is in June of this year, which is 2019. If you come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, there is a link up at the top of the menu. Or if you're on a mobile device, if you click the little menu button, it'll drop down. It says Paris trip, exclamation point, and it'll have all the information, how to sign up, how to get in touch with the people who are running this whole thing if you have questions. We hope we see you there because you can join us and we'd love for you to. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. <laughs> I'm excited and self-serving because today we're going to talk about my spirit of choice, vodka. <laughs> as soon as you told me what you were researching, I thought this is going to be Holly's favorite episode ever. Um, sort of. I mean, I, we get into some of the bleak stuff that comes with vodka, so it's not all fun and games. Uh, I certainly enjoy a cocktail, but obviously we are not advocating over-imbibing, drink responsibly. We just want to talk about the history of this drink. Um, and the story of vodka is one that is really closely tied to cultural identity for several countries. Uh, but we're going to examine where it originated and how it evolved over time and how those identities sort of formed. I bet when I say vodka and country, people automatically make a connection, and we'll talk about why that's the case. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit also about how vodka is made, and then we'll get into that part about where it came from and how it has expanded to become uh, really a global market, focusing on those countries where it remains and has become most popular. And then we have to talk about some of the problematic aspects of vodka's place in the world, uh, but I promise we'll end in a fairly fun place. Yeah. Vodka is a little unusual in that it can be made from a lot of different things while still being considered vodka, which isn't so much the case with a number of other spirits. There are, of course, a lot of opinions and disagreements about just how far afield you can go in selecting the base ingredient while still calling the resulting spirit vodka. Yeah, this starts some heated debates I discovered in my research. Uh, it requires a sugar or starch element to begin with. So most popular in Russia and Poland, as well as other countries kind of in that northern belt, are grains, potatoes, or sugar beet molasses as the starting ingredient. Uh, there is actually an area that's colloquially called the vodka belt, which stretches from Sweden to Poland, and that produces the majority of the vodka that is consumed in the European Union. In other places, though, there's a greater variability, including using things like corn and fruit. And whether those things should be considered vodka was the matter of debate for some time. 
European Parliament ruled on the matter in 2007, giving a wider range of options for distillers, all falling under this vodka umbrella, defining vodka as a spirit drink produced from ethyl alcohol of agricultural origin. Yeah, you can even, if you're feeling very, very ambitious and uh, want to do some some juggling and babysitting, you could even start a vodka from just sugar, although it's not really the recommended uh, for general making is my understanding. I have never distilled vodka myself, so I'm going by what I have read. Uh, <laughs> that ruling that we just talked about was Unsurprisingly, not entirely popular. For vodka purists, it really signaled a degradation to the spirit. And the Finnish politician Alexander Stubb made the case that vodka should be more specifically defined. He said at that time, quote, We have made vodka out of potato and grain for over 500 years. When we became EU members in 1995, we were told that vodka would have a tight definition, just like rum, just like whiskey, just like grappa. We don't want vodka to be some kind of alcoholic wastebasket. I really like the idea that this, like, <laughs> it sounds almost like their their becoming part of the EU was in some ways contingent on the definition of vodka. <laughs> yes, that was definitely part of what they were they were agreeing to is that vodka would have this this rigorous fairly rigorous standard applied to it, and that didn't really pan out. No, the reason that the rules of what could be used to produce vodka were relaxed was that vodka was already being made from a variety of ingredients at distilleries all over Europe, and excluding the producers that used alternates to grain and potatoes could have led to a trade war. Countries outside of the EU were making vodka out of all kinds of things, and so if the ruling had taken a more strict stance, that would have opened a huge can of worms in terms of the global spirits market. Yeah, so if you would imagine, uh, trying to put this in sort of real terms instead of just theoreticals, if you went into your local liquor store today to buy vodka and you see all of the offerings, and then something like this had happened, and some people in the world said, no, no, that thing you've been buying is vodka for X number of years is no longer vodka. Like, it would just be a little bit of chaos uh, in terms of how manufacturers labeled things. I imagine there would be pushback <laughs> because people wouldn't want to change the identities of the products they had been making for a long time. Uh, it really just would have been an absolute chaotic mess. Uh, incidentally, in the U.S., vodka is legally defined in ultra-broad terms as, quote, neutral spirits so distilled or so treated after distillation with charcoal or other materials as to be without distinctive character, aroma, taste, or color. That is pretty <laughs> it's so, broad. It's so broad and, and nebulous. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless of whether the primary ingredient is an old-school traditional take or one that falls under the wider rules, after the fermenting ingredient is selected, it goes through fermentation. The base material is crushed, blended with water, and heated, which turns the starch into sugar. That result is combined with yeast, and then the fluid is distilled from the combined mixture. So alcohol, of course, boils more quickly than water. So the alcohol component in that mixture vaporizes more quickly than the water in the mix. And that vapor is captured, excluding the very first and last vapors of the batch. And next, that vapor is then condensed into a very potent alcohol. And then that alcohol is combined again with water to produce the final product, vodka. That's the very basic process. If you've completed those steps, you have what could technically be called vodka. 
But it can be, and usually is, further refined and processed to alter the taste and the purity, filtering it through charcoal, lava, linen, or a number of other substances, or performing multiple distillations will make the spirit cleaner and purer, and also remove virtually all of the taste. Yeah, if you go on a uh, an online spelunking expedition to see what people have used to filter vodka, you will find everything from, like, diamond dust to <laughs> two pieces of cloth. Uh, and for some, that becomes part of, like, their brand identity. Or if they're doing, like, small batch artisanal stuff, it's part of their thing that they're, they're creating new ways to do it. And of course, uh, flavored vodka is very popular, and the flavor has to be added after all of these other steps. This is often done at the production level, but there are also plenty of consumers who like to add their own flavor infusions to plain vodka for custom flavors. So I'm sure if you have friends who drink, you know somebody who has been like, I infused my vodka with Jolly Ranchers or with apples or with any number of other... I've had friends who have done it with jelly beans. The result was delicious. Uh, it just depends on what you like. (laughs) There are consumers and connoisseurs who desire a vodka that still tastes at least a little bit like its original ingredients rather than having a post-distillation added flavor. Some artisanal vodka producers use small copper moonshine stills instead of the stills that are used in larger production setups because the resulting spirit retains some of those component tastes. Yeah, if you want your vodka to taste like a little like the wheat or the uh, potato or whatever was used initially, then uh, that is probably a better way to achieve it. Quality standards for vodka are actually a really tricky topic because there aren't any that are universally recognized. Uh, Some countries, such as Poland, define quality by purity. There are other municipalities that categorize simply by alcohol content, like what percentage of the the resulting spirit is alcohol. Uh, There's also marketing in the mix playing a part, with some distillers touting the purity of the water that they use as the ultimate determinant of quality. We're about to dive into where all of this vodka production started, or at least where people think it started. But first, we will take a break to hear from one of the sponsors that keeps the show going. While the identity of vodka today is one of an intoxicant, initially, it's believed that it was developed for medicinal use. But its exact point of origin is lost to time and is consequently argued by various countries wishing to claim ownership of the world's most popular spirit. Russia and Poland remain locked in their ongoing argument over the matter, both using language as evidence. So the Russian word for water is voda with a V. The Polish word for water is voda with a W. It's a very subtle difference. I'm probably not uh, enunciating it in a way that makes that that difference apparent to native speakers, but they do sound very similar, uh, <laughs> particularly to Western ears. And proponents of the Polish origins of vodka say that the word Vodka with a W, spelled with a W instead of a V, appeared in print before vodka with a V, and thus it must be Polish in origin. There are some additional elements in this whole Russia versus Poland debate on where vodka came from. A Polish drink called gorzolka has existed since the 11th century, and there have been some assertions that that's the original proto-vodka. But the counter-argument is that the historic drink of Gorzolka is a more general, undefined alcoholic spirit and not really anything that can be definitively linked to vodka. 
Ukraine also has a claim to vodka's birthplace because that area produced the most grains in the region in the 15th century. So it would make sense that grain-based alcohol originated there. And there is even the possibility, truly, that vodka actually first entered the region from somewhere else and that locals then figured out how to make their own. We know that vodka, as we know it, originated somewhere in Eastern Europe. But whether that's in modern Ukraine, Russia, Poland, or Belarus, we don't really know. The whole region is inhospitable to grapes as a crop, so inventive folks came up with new ways to make alcohol. The prevailing theory is that we have monks to thank for it, as is true with a number of other alcohols. They needed a spirit to use as a sedative and disinfectant in the communities where they worked, and they turned to wheat to get it. Yeah, so that's why it it kind of has those origins as a medicinal In the 1400s, vodka production became more refined, and it also branched out to use other grains. Early vodkas were most likely quite sharp, having a very unpleasant flavor. Uh, They weren't doing all of that refining and, and filtering that we would do today. So flavoring started to be added in order to help make it more palatable. Fruit, honey, and spices came into the picture, but in making vodka more tasty, distillers helped to shift it away from simply medicinal use to recreational because then it started to be yummy. And that shift in identity to a beverage from a medicine led to more experimentation and innovation. Vodka stayed largely in Northern Europe for a while, but eventually it began to spread. Like other products we've talked about, as shipping and industry grew, vodka was able to travel farther and farther away from its point of origin. But even so, there was still a lot of cool stuff going on in that sort of cradle where it first came about. In Poland in particular, herbal vodkas were developed to treat all manner of ailments and concerns in the 16th century. And it was also in Poland that potatoes were first used in fermentation to create vodka. And Polish distillers continued to drive the exploration of flavorings and tweaks to distilling methods well into the 19th century. But vodka is often linked with Russia and Russian cultural identity. And that's due in part to how quickly Ivan III of Russia, also known as Ivan the Great, established vodka as a key revenue source in the country. In 1474, he started taxing vodka and set up a government-based monopoly on the beverage. And that set the stage for his successor, Ivan IV, known as Ivan the Terrible, to continue manipulating the flow of vodka to suit his own desires. Ivan IV went so far as to exclude most of his people from having access to vodka. He set up a new social class of loyal favorites, and only they could have vodka. And in this move, he redistributed land to them and also turned his back on the nobility that had existed before this restructure. He also used vodka to keep people loyal to him because cross the czar and you would lose your drinking privileges. Other Russian leaders similarly used vodka as a means to reward their favorites and to intoxicate guests so that they would tell state secrets. And in the case of Peter the Great, force enemies to drink until they collapsed. But it was Catherine II, also known as Catherine the Great, who instituted changes that once again put vodka in the glasses and the cups of common people. Under her rule, the vodka monopoly ended and more distillers were licensed to produce the spirit. The costs of vodka were also regulated to keep prices reasonable, but this often led to the dilution of the product on the part of the producers. Yeah, if the costs were going to be capped at a pretty low amount, they were like, well, we're going to stretch our product then. 
this also led to vodka quality being seen as a shorthand way to identify one's status. So even though they had taken away the the access through the hierarchy, it sort of uh, built itself again in a new way. The wealthiest households began distilling their own vodkas with an array of expensive flavorings and spices. And this was to maintain their distance from peasants in the eyes of guests. Even the potency of the perfect vodka was scientifically measured by the Russian scientist Dmitry Mendeleev. If you believe that myth, that name sounds familiar. It's because his published work, Tentative System of Elements, is the foundation of the periodic table of the elements. But before that, his dissertation, A Discourse on the Combination of Alcohol and Water, is said to have established 38% alcohol by volume as the best proportion for vodka. In fact, he was working with theoreticals and alcohols in much higher concentrations than that. None of it had anything to do with setting a gold standard for vodka. His connection to vodka has been mythologized a lot over the years. It's easy to find assertions that he invented vodka. Obviously, he did not do that. Or that he served on the state's regulatory commission and was tasked with implementing rules for the perfect vodka. He did serve on a government weights and measures agency, but he wasn't given any kind of mandate to codify vodka production. Just the same, his story used in various advertisements and spread throughout the internet has added to this perception that Russia is the epicenter of all things vodka. Yeah, the trick there is that at least I could not find an English translation of that dissertation that he wrote. So it's very easy for people to claim what is in it. Yeah. (laughs) So it really, really does spread like wildfire. I'd read that dissertation, though. I would, too. Uh, In the 1860s, Pyotr A. Smirnov founded a vodka company in Moscow, which became the favored source of the spirit for the country's royals. And it is now one of the most common brands in the world. And it continues that link between Russia and vodka in the minds of consumers everywhere. Under the Bolsheviks in the 19-teens, alcohol was outlawed. When the Soviet Union was established in 1922, mild alcoholic drinks were once again allowed to be sold. And in 1925, vodka was again legalized at normal proof. When Joseph Stalin gained power in the 1930s, he had state-run distilleries increase production to generate revenue, even though he knew there was a real problem with alcoholism in the country. Yeah, we're going to talk about that again in just a little while. Uh, But though some temperance efforts started after Stalin died, drinking remained a problem. And it wasn't until the 1980s under Gorbachev that temperance efforts got a real boost and the government made a concerted effort to get the entire country on board. And while the programs that were initiated during this time did curtail drinking to some degree and improve overall health statistics of the population, eventually public sentiment turned against it. Next up, we're going to talk about how vodka became one of the most popular liquors in the United States. But first, we will have a quick sponsor break. Uh, Surprise! The U.S. is the world's second greatest consumer of vodka after Russia. Uh, That may or may not surprise you. I found it a little surprising. Uh, Vodka didn't really get a serious place in drinking stateside, though, until after Prohibition. Prior to that, there was just a smattering of mediocre vodka options available, and it really didn't catch on in any sort of significant way. In the 1930s, a Russian immigrant named Rudolf Kunit, who had purchased the rights to use the Smirnoff name, started selling better vodka in the United States than had been available previously. His Connecticut distillery struggled until the end of that decade when it was purchased on behalf of 
Hublin's Liquor Company by John G. Martin. Hublin's was absorbed by a larger company, but Martin had wisely made sure that he retained the rights to the Smirnoff name. Yeah, he had been an executive with Hublin's, and uh, he had had written that in smartly where he got some rights uh, for distribution. But Martin didn't figure out a way to capitalize on his rights to the Smirnoff name until 1941, when he and his friend and tavern owner came up with the combination of ginger beer and vodka with lemon or lime juice in a copper mug. Uh, This has its own mythology around it, uh, where it happened in L.A., which is where his friend's tavern was, versus it happened in New York and it only took off in L.A., and that one of them had too much ginger beer and one of them had too much vodka and it was almost a Reese's Cup situation. Um, <laughs> and we don't really know, but he they he is completely recognized, he and his friend, as originating the Moscow Mule. Uh, and once that drink was born, it finally made drinkers in the United States embrace vodka, at least until World War II. Uh, After the war, for a while, vodka became sort of spirit non grata in the U.S. as the Cold War began, and all things associated with the Soviet Union were viewed through that lens. It didn't go away completely, and Martin was still concocting other cocktails with vodka, but it really, it kind of had a big spike in in popularity and then a big drop-off. Vodka's reputation perked up once Sean Connery ordered a vodka martini in Dr. No in 1962. But then it really got a boost when President Richard Nixon, after visiting the Soviet Union, approved business between Pepsi-Cola and the USSR. In exchange for assistance in setting up a Pepsi factory in the Soviet Union, the U.S. business was paid in Stolichnaya vodka, which made the soda giant the Stoli distributor in the U.S., With the backing of a massive cola brand, vodka became the most popular spirit in the U.S. in 1975. Vodka remains one of the most popular liquors in the United States, and Smirnoff is the most popular brand. Yeah, if you look at, like, year-to-year top 10 uh, spirits in the U.S., vodka is almost always in the top two, and usually it is um, Smirnoff. It it shifts a little bit, uh, but I think whiskey kind of stays at the top, or has for the last several years anyway. Um, but that's all fun and games, but we have to acknowledge that vodka has a, a pretty dark side to its history as well. There have certainly been plenty of issues that stemmed from overindulgence in and addiction to alcohol in the world's ongoing story. For example, in the late 19th century, Russia was in the middle of a real crisis of alcoholism, It was so bad that it threatened the labor pool and caused outcry from activist groups and churches and medical professionals. Eventually, Tsar Alexander III couldn't ignore the problem any longer and limited the production of vodka, put regulations in place to mandate quality, and formed a temperance society that touted the idea of drinking in moderation, despite the fact that the name of the society, which was the Guardianship of Public Sobriety, might suggest that it would be against the drink altogether. To be clear, though, Alexander III himself was a drinker. Yeah, he was definitely responding to outside pressures. He was not like, hey, we should cut back on drinking in the country because he loved to drink. Uh, The state also started a program to boost non-alcoholic entertainments as a means to curtail drinking. Free theater and concerts, as well as adult education offerings and other leisure incentives were offered, but none of this really worked at all. 
Regulations did not stop illicit liquor sales and the production of inferior product. And this problem with alcoholism persisted into the Russo-Japanese War and actually cost Russia battles, backing them into a corner and putting them in a really weak position for brokering a treaty. Additionally, the Tsar's decision to ban alcohol in an effort to help the troops stay on task for that conflict meant that a huge source of tax revenue was lost in the process. And all of that was before the 20th century efforts to sober up the country that we mentioned earlier. In 2014, a study titled Alcohol and Mortality was conducted at the University of Toronto, and it featured some really grim data. The authors of the paper, Jürgen Rem and Kevin D. Shield, outlined the fact that more than 200 different diseases are linked to alcohol. But their research focuses on cancer, liver cirrhosis, and injury. And their research indicated that in 2010, 4.1% of all deaths globally from those diseases were attributable to alcohol consumption. That same year, alcohol consumption resulted in an average percentage of years lost of 4.3%. Those numbers increased as compared to similar data from 1990. This is not in your outline, but I was reading a thing recently that was a hypothesis that one of the reasons that breast cancer rates are lower in Utah is because of Utah's more stringent alcohol laws. I I cannot speak to that because I have not read it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of those things, right? We definitely have to kind of acknowledge that uh, consuming alcohol comes with inherent danger. Mm -hmm. There was a recent study, I didn't put it in my notes either, so I'm quoting it kind of out of the air, uh, that basically, I think it was from 2016 or 2017, that was like, really the safest way to consume alcohol is to not consume alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because even though there are, and it's outlined in the REM paper, there are some specific health issues that alcohol in moderation can actually help But for the most part, like, the dangers are far worse than any of those. Mm -hmm. So uh, just things to consider. We're not telling people to go out and drink a ton of vodka. Um, Let's all be Uh, grown-ups. And we don't want to minimize also or downplay the issue of overindulgence or addiction. Uh, But that would be a really downer place to end this episode. So instead, uh, I thought it might be fun to close with a few anecdotes and facts about vodka that are just sort of fascinating on their own. We mentioned earlier that vodka was probably originally concocted for medicinal use, but there are still plenty of sort of old wives' remedies that make use of it. Alcohol infused with St. John's wort and sage is believed to have had curative powers as a liniment. Vodka served with black pepper is an old Russian cold remedy, and vodka fumes from infused fabrics are believed by some to cure everything from muscle aches to ear problems, It's also used as an astringent cleanser to clean out pores and as a disinfectant for wounds. It can be used for cleaning surfaces as well as humans, as a polish for mirrors, chrome, tile, and the like. Yeah, it definitely will kill all your stuff. My favorite use for vodka, uh, which I didn't put in here, but it is, here's the trick I give to you that I learned from working in costume shops forever. If you get cheap, cheap vodka and you put it in a spritzer bottle... Uh, if you can't make it to a dry cleaner, that will freshen up your clothes, kill any bacteria that are causing odor, and help you get through to your next thing. Yeah, this is why I have in my bathroom under the sink, there are two spray bottles, both clearly marked, so I don't confuse them. One contains peroxide, the other contains vodka. <laughs> yeah, I uh, at one point I was uh, helping out as like a, a really low-level 
mouse in a costume shop that was serving a ballet company, and their uh, their costume director was always walking around with a bottle of vodka and spritzing things to make sure that they did not smell bad, especially if you were doing like a matinee performance in an evening and there was no way to really do serious cleaning between the two in terms of time, especially when you're trying to prep things for a full corps de ballet. Uh, a little vodka spritz will help perk things up and make it not smell bad. Uh, there's also another little household hint, which is that adding vodka and sugar to water at the base of Christmas trees or to vases of flowers is thought to prolong the life of the plants. I have never tried that one. Me neither. Just don't make your don't make your Christmas tree water accidentally flammable. <laughs> In the 1860s, the Smirnoff Distillery added anise and egg whites to combine with the vodka to make it more delicious. I would like to disagree. With Smirnoff about whether that would be more delicious. Is it the licorice? It's the licorice. Or the egg whitey taste? Not a fan of licorice. I love licorice. So this sounds delightful. You can have all mine. (laughs) If you've never had like egg white foam in an alcoholic drink, and that may sound weird to you, I encourage you, if you are of legal drinking age, to try it uh, because it's quite interesting. There's There's some good tiki drinks that feature it as well. Uh, This is another one that I love. In 2011, the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow, which was originally built in 1776, went through a major spruce-up and renovation. It actually started far before 2011, but that's when it finished, uh, after it had been neglected for several decades. But when it came to the finishing touches performed by guilders, they turned to a medieval recipe. It turns out to make perfect gold gilt, Egg whites have to be first kept in a warm room for 40 days, and then those egg whites are mixed with a clay, and then the magic ingredient, vodka, is added to that mixture, which is then used to apply gold leaf. And according to Mikhail Sidorov, who works for the company that handled this refurbishment project, quote, this method keeps gold from being overused and helps retain its luster for 50 to 70 years. So in essence, the same kind of thing that makes baked bread look shiny and delicious will also make your gold gleam and gleam in the light. (laughs) Due to an uptick in specific diets, there are now vodkas marketed that fit within various eating restrictions. So any domestically made, non-flavored grain or potato-based vodka in the U.S. is considered kosher. Some brands made outside the U.S. choose to seek kosher certification from the Orthodox Union, including Stolichnaya and Crystal Head. And some vodkas include messaging on the label about their gluten-free status. Yeah, if you have dietary restrictions, there is probably a company out there uh, making vodka that wants to make sure you know you can drink whatever it is they're making. Um, And because I love talking about art, we're going to end with innovative Norwegian artist Vebjorn Sand. And when Sand was visiting Antarctica and was inspired to paint using the watercolors that he had brought with him, he ran into a little bit of a problem, which is that his paints were freezing before he could get anything done. And his Russian guides suggested vodka, and he found success when he mixed that with his pigments, and he called the resulting technique vodka color. Uh, I I love a little innovation. I feel like vodka is sort of one of those universal solvent substances yeah. <laughs> because it does get used still medicinally, still for cleaning and uh, astringent needs, and also in art, and also to make things beautiful and uh, gilt-edged with gold. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Yeah. Okay, again, don't overindulge. Uh, please to, uh, be careful with your vodka consumption. Or don't drink at all if that is the choice that you would rather make. Yeah, totally fine. Uh, whatever works for you and is best for your health. 
I feel a little like Steve Rule, but I'm going <laughs> to back up off of that. Uh, I have a postcard this week, but here's the problem. I'm going to read it, but I don't know who it's from Uh-oh. because it appears they did not sign it. I think they just forgot because it's a lovely little note. Uh, <laughs> but if you were the person that sent this to us, thank you. And I'm sorry we can't say your name on the air because uh, I don't see it anywhere on the card. Uh, although they did put a little additional thing that says, thank you for being awesome up in the corner, but not their name. But they wrote, hey, ladies, I visited San Francisco in December. Uh, I just had to go to the trolley car museum, which Tracy talked about in her San Francisco trolley car episode that she wrote. Uh, I talked about it as well, but she did the research on that one. Uh, My boyfriend was hesitant to go, but he uh, literally didn't stop talking about it afterwards. We also visited Coit Tower and learned about Lily, so I thought I'd share. And the, the postcard is a picture of Lily Hitchcock Coit, uh, and the caption on the back of the postcard says, seven-year-old Lily Hitchcock's life was saved by volunteers of Knickerbocker Engine 5. Ever after, Lily was their patron and honorary member of the company. Lily's bequest for San Francisco's beautification built Coit Tower. Uh, So that's a cool little combo of uh, visiting a place we've talked about on the show and giving us a little mini education via postcard. So thank you, thank you, thank you to whatever wonderful person sent us this. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can go to mistinhistory.com to see all of the episodes of the show that have ever existed, including show notes on any of the ones Tracy and I have worked on. If you would like to subscribe to the show, that sounds like a grand idea to me. You can do that through the iHeartRadio app, the uh, Apple Podcast Player, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 